Harvesting the Wind, Planting Renewable Energy in the Midwest. Interview with Sarah Mills, Episode 77. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with Sarah Mills, a senior project manager at the Graham Sustainability Institute and lecturer at the School for Environment and Sustainability at the University of Michigan. Uniquely for this podcast, we are learning about the Midwest of the United States and my home state of Michigan. For me, this is one of the most eye-opening interviews I've done in a very long time, and I realize that sounds odd. I mean, our focus here on the podcast is usually Europe, but even in my own home state in the backyard there, I was really surprised by a lot of the research Sarah has done and what she talks about in this interview and who supports and who doesn't support the development of renewable energy projects at the community level. This rural community level is the focus of our discussion this week, and it's quite wide-ranging, but I found it fascinating and surprising, and I think you will too. Because as you'll hear throughout our conversation, the acceptance or rejection, for example, wind farms, we also talk about solar, uh, is that it depends on community members' perspectives on the use of the land. We really get into zoning and ordinances and the conflict that this happens around or who the conflict happens around. For example, farmers supporting wind, while those that may have a second home on a nearby lake, so they live full-time in the city, but they have a vacation home, which is quite common in Michigan, they may actually oppose the projects. Sarah explains that the rollout of renewable projects that impact the landscape is only recent, well, somewhat recent, we could say at least here, but it's stemming from our historical reliance on coal-fired power plants, which took up less space. So Sarah describes how change in land use is a real challenge for community zoning boards who lack the expertise and experience to balance the polarized views from the communities. So think about this. A lot of communities actually haven't even dealt really that much with renewable energy projects, the big one being solar, or the big one being wind, sorry, and then the smaller one being solar now. But there's also going to be more and more things being rolled out across the United States. So this is why this discussion about the rural versus, we would say, even urban areas and where renewable energy projects, I think it's a really important conversation that we have this week. For example, in this discussion, we look at how policies in Washington will be impacting communities across the U.S. We kind of have a view of this and from Sarah's research that she's done in the past, I think these topics are going to become even more prevalent as the discussion is happening. Specifically, what I mean is we discuss the expansion of tax credits to foster more renewable energy projects on a huge scale. This is the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act and also the bipartisan infrastructure law that's in the United States. I really enjoyed my discussion with Sarah, and as you hear, there remain important obstacles for renewable energy that communities must deal with. Is it fair to standardize zoning regulation, so for example, at the state level or the national level, or is it better to have different requirements every six miles or so when the jurisdiction changes? So these are real uh, everyday problems that developers that are, are interested in having and rolling out, say, wind farms or solar farms, what they have to confront every day is these we could say arbitrary lines, but lines of government and, and the people and how they organize themselves. So it's not just the natural features of the land and where's best to uh, develop a, a renewable energy project, but also what do the local governments have to say? What do the local residents have to say? And how do they weigh this? So we have a brief discussion about energy justice that kind of brings it all out towards the end there of local versus state or national standards. So is it really fair to exclude the local in deciding to build these energy projects? Because the subtext of our conversation really is about these ambitious targets the United States has, and and I would say throughout the world, right? We have these big targets. We have to use more renewable energy. But what about the local level where actually these projects have to be built? So as you'll hear, this is not a theoretical argument but one that is happening more and more and will be continue to happen more and more. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system 
And I would even say the debates can assist our transition towards a greener future. And now for this week's episode. I'm here today with Sarah Mills, Senior Project Manager at the Graham Sustainability Institute. She's also a lecturer at School for Environment and Sustainability at the University of Michigan. So Sarah, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, it's great. And I know we've had a great discussion so far, so I'm just happy that we can get it kind of down now and, and on, on the record, basically. Uh, my first question to you is how did you get interested in renewable energy? And that's a very broad question. It can be just energy, but maybe your background and why, why it was so interesting for you. Um, it, it is not a linear path at all. I am a recovering engineer. So my first degrees were in engineering and I did, um, I, my master's is in engineering for sustainable development. And I looked at whether renewable energy could be used to desalinate water. So yes. so you would think that it comes from that, but it doesn't yes. actually. No. <laughs> I uh, then followed my heart and my husband kind of yes, all over the place. It, it happens. <laughs> it happens. Yes. And ended up in South Sudan between the vote for independence and becoming an independent nation. I was asked to do the towns, um, the, the town that we were living in, asked to um, be their town surveyor. Okay. To, it, during moving to a system of private land ownership, mm-hmm. I realized that I didn't know about planning in Africa or rural environments. So realized that most of that research, like there, there hadn't been much written, at least in planning in rural environments in, in the U.S. for some time. So when we came back to the U.S. to get my Ph.D., I was going to study farmland preservation. Okay. Which is weird, right? There's yeah, no energy yes, in that yet. No. I was driving up the middle of Michigan to my in-law's cottage and went through a wind farm yes. that I had never known existed and Googled it and realized that it was being promoted as a farmland preservation tool. Ah, yes. And so that became my dissertation, understanding whether renewable energy or wind energy specifically yes. was a farmland preservation tool. And then since then, a whole bunch of my work has been on this the rural side of renewable energy development. So that is my story, which is, it wow. all makes sense now in retrospect, right? An yes, engineer yes. turns social science, yes. it seems like it's very linear in it it's not at all <laughs> no but I, I think i think it's a common story for people in energy because energy collects people with all different types of backgrounds and i would say eclectic backgrounds yeah it's it's this topic of energy and sustainability and all these your your zoning planning all these uh, engineering it's technology so it's all these different types of this is why i find that the topic so interesting i think because it's it's not just I don't know, maybe one discipline, you really have to be thinking in a linear manner and involved with lots of different types of people. Yeah, absolutely. But I'll tell you, like, okay, most okay. people, when they ask me, I'll say, I'm an expert in farmland preservation, like that okay. happens to know energy. Like, I, I don't see. know, like, yeah. Was that, sorry, what, that wind farm, was that uh, uh, Grashit Rich, County. Rich, Rich Vanderveen. Rich Vanderveen's I, project. I know Rich. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Small world. <laughs> it's a really small world. Okay. So, because I interviewed him for my PhD when I was back in, I don't know, 2000, early 2000s. Oh. So, I did a, my PhD was on deregulation in Michigan and Wisconsin, looking at the two different states. All so, right. So, that was it. So, I, so I came into contact with him then. At that that point, point, he had probably developed the two wind turbines that are up by the Mackinac Bridge, but not the entire wind farm because that didn't come until 2008, 10. Yes. Yes. So it was before then. So yeah, yeah. What a small world. Yeah, it's a really small world. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So that was one of our sidetracks. And then, um, but now you're at the Graham Institute. Uh, or sorry, Graham Sustainability Institute. Right. And and what goes on here? We're, we're sitting here, and so you have actually windmills in your... Uh, oh, it's a Lego windmill. It's a Lego windmill. I can turn it on. Yeah. Wow. Okay, you don't have to, but it's wow, Vestis, it's amazing. In case, in oh, case really? Europeans care. Oh, uh. <laughs> okay, okay. Excellent. Wow. So, yeah. So, so the Graham Sustainability Institute sits within the provost office at the university, so it's a cross-campus unit trying to connect the outside world, users of knowledge, whether it's companies or governments or communities, with 
um, the research that goes on on campus. And we see ourselves as kind of this bridge organization. So I lead our energy programming here. We also have programs on water. Those are kind of our two big focal areas. And then we have some education programs that are co-curricular. So we don't offer any degrees, but we try to connect students that are in different departments on campus to each other to work together on projects. Okay. And I'll ask the question, how does that how well or how does that work by the, the students being involved? Because as we just mentioned, including your background, right? Mm-hmm. We, for the energy sector as a whole, it requires a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different disciplines. So for the students themselves, they're in one department, but maybe need to cooperate with another department. How does that, uh, without getting into politics, uh, how, <laughs> how, 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 how does that work? Are there internships or how do you foster this collaboration? Yeah, so for particularly for the student programming, they meet regularly kind of as a cohort. Then they work together on a project that requires them meeting outside of class time. Um, actually, while I was doing my PhD, I was in one of the student cohorts. And uh-huh. I would say it was the one of the most formative experiences because it forces those students to figure out how what they're doing how how to use their language to yes. a different kind of scientist yes 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 um you know we do i i don't lead the programs so i'll okay. so okay. i'll brag on my colleagues who do a really fantastic job filling in a lot of the translational skills that scientists Yes. Budding scientists need yes. in this space um, in terms of communications and kind of talking to to non-academics. So, uh-huh. um, yeah, I think I think I think that this is one of our kind of crown jewels at Graham and, and the University of Michigan. There's not yes. tons of programs like that. No, no. I, I, I love it because in my, my class is about energy and sustainability. I see we, we teach actually some similar courses. Uh, it's, you're bringing in all these people, the students from different disciplines, and then they putting them into a class or on a project, and they have to work together and speak the same language or learn to speak the same language. And I, and I love it. It's, it's really exciting. I... I insist that when I'm teaching my class that I open it up to people in different departments because the students learn more when they're forced to explain their assumptions yes. to yes. engineers or to you know public policy students or to business students. Yes. So yeah. Yeah, no, I love it. And they kind of look at me funny like, what? What are we supposed to do? I'm like, you figure it out. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love it's a little chaos, but but I love it. So um and then um, also uh, one of the interesting areas I've seen that you also do is you're, you're serving on the Ann Arbor Planning Commission. Is that right? It is. It's a volunteer appointment. It is my <laughs> little bit of public service. <laughs> I, won't, I won't ask you how many hours a week you work. But anyways, but what do you as a as a researcher, how do you what do you learn by doing that, that that you bring from, I would say, academia? And what is it? How does it inform your own research as well? I would say um, it was not intentional that it that it kind of links to my job. I okay. I did it literally as my way to like do public service, right? Like uh-huh. to do a little bit of volunteerism. Um, I get so I think I'm a better planning commissioner as a result of my job in understanding kind of the land use considerations in rural communities. It for people who might not know, Ann Arbor is mm. it's a small city. I mean, by some standards, for Ann Ar- for Michigan standards, it's pretty big. We've got yes. 120,000 people. Um oh. our population swells with students. Um but it, it's it's not huge. And so the issues that we're dealing with are quite different, but to my day job, my experience on the planning commission gives me so much empathy for the local for the planning commissioners in rural communities that are faced with a big renewable energy project um we are really fortunate in the city of ann arbor to have a pretty big planning staff i think we have six or seven planners most of the places that i do my research in and with in rural communities don't have any planners on staff maybe they get part of a consult a planning consultants time um so it's just kind of understanding how difficult it is in ann arbor as a planning commissioner with all of this expertise and what it must be like to be in the shoes of a planning commissioner in a rural community 
where there's a lawyer showing up who wants them to cite, uh, you know. Uh, right, right. <laughs> and and to get the opposition, or at least maybe, maybe I won't say opposite. Well, that, that can no, occur, but the reservation from the local communities. Exactly. Uh-huh. I mean, it, we know, I know from my time here, in this city of 120,000 people, if 30 people show up to a planning commission meeting, that's a lot of okay. people. I have been in a rural community of 500 people where there are 75 people showing up to a planning wow. commission meeting, mostly to speak against a wind or solar farm. Okay, and yes, so, yes, yes. So like there's huge amounts of empathy. In, in the city of Ann Arbor, we meet, we have, there's lots of development happening. We meet every Tuesday night. Uh, in some of these rural places, their planning yeah. commission meets once every three months. It meets oh, quarterly. okay, okay. There's nothing to talk about. Well, not, nothing, not much to talk there's about usually. Not, like this, mm-hmm. this, you know, there's not gigantic development proposals. And so this is really a shock to some of these, you know, to the yeah. system in a lot of places. Yeah, if someone comes in from the outside. And, and actually, we're going to segue now to your research because you've done research in this way in, in how well, um, at least from some of the publications, how well, what was it, like prior consultation? There's, there's differences between the acceptance of wind or solar and mm-hmm. how much consultation goes on. Yeah. Are there some better practices in this area? Yeah, so... Um, my my research is kind of <laughs> when I see some a community needs yes. an answer to something, I'll usually start a research project yes. about it. So it doesn't yes. all make sense. Yeah. There's a I'm um there's a decent amount of literature from the US on public acceptance in the wind space, growing amount in the solar space, but in the wind space, a lot of that research is talking about the process. Um and kind of the distribution of benefits. I've done a little bit in that space. Probably in the, what I would say is, um, I don't, I'm not famous, but the thing that like. <laughs> yes, yes, you're known for. No, no, I understand. Yes. The, the thing in this yeah. space that I'm known for is to say, hey, <laughs> we have developers who are more or less following the same process, but being met with really different reactions. So why is it? Yes. So even if you have the same community benefits and you have the same process, why do some communities say we want more wind and others say we don't? And so one of the things that I have, I have a paper called Farmers versus Lakers. I love that title. (laughs) I love it. Uh, Well, and it comes from something that happened during my dissertation. So I went to a rural community in Hillsdale County, which is super rural, the middle of the state. There was a wind farm proposal um, they had to move the meeting from the township hall into the school auditorium because there were so, or to the school gymnasium. Yes, yes. Because there was, they were expecting such a crowd. When I sat down, the lady next to me said, "Are you here with the farmers or are you here with the Lakers?" And I was confused because I didn't. There's. It's this farm territory. But apparently there was a tiny inland lake. Michigan has a whole bunch of small lakes. Yes. We think of the Great Lakes, but there's also these small inland lakes. And there was one there. And people had their kind of second homes or their retirement homes there. And they were really opposed to the wind farm. And so a couple of years later, I did this study to try to understand, are there patterns in communities that support or oppose wind? And we were able to find that there are in places in the U.S. where there's more farmers, where there's yes. more agricultural yes. activity. Wind is less contentious because it's another way to make money on yeah, the property. Yeah, 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 exactly. And in uh-huh. places where there are more lakers, yes. more amenity landscapes, people see this as a change to that amenity. And so there's more opposition. Oh, that's so that's such a amazing study how it's set up like that, actually. I mean, it's I don't want to say black and white, but but it's very polar. You're almost the polar opposites. And but how 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 do they bridge this gap? Is there a way to bridge this gap or is it they just. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that makes wind or these projects really contentious in communities, and this is really true in Michigan, like Michigan actually by the numbers is probably has some of this most contentious wind projects because we have people who are there, people living in the very same community where these 
kind of productivist. That's actually from the European farmland okay. preservation literature. Yes, There's a lot yes. of like productivist yes. um, language. Um, we have. Actually, I think the European languages would say there's multifunctional landscapes. Okay, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and so there's this productivist quality and this amenity quality. And where you have people there for those two different reasons, that's where things really get contentious. So to, to clarify, amenities, it would be like the retirees, second home owners who are there because they made it a lake, they lake view, the, the outdoor exactly. uh, environment. And then the productionists would be like the, the farmers, the people producing from the land. Right. And uh -huh. I mean, some uh -huh. of my my survey work finds that people who have wind turbines on their property don't all believe that wind turbines are beautiful. Okay. Yes. They, but I, like the kind of anecdote that I give is that my mom's side of the family raised hogs, raised pigs. Okay. And like, they also don't believe that hogs are like nice smelling creatures <laughs> yes 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 but this is the way you make money off of their land like this yes. is how and, and yes. my my dissertation work was effectively yes. like wind energy development is a is a farm diversification strategy you can diversify mm -hmm. your income yes. and so you can weather the ups and downs of the agricultural market and so even a farmer who doesn't believe that wind turbines are beautiful sees yes. this as a way to diversify and stay in business, more yes. or less. But their non-farming neighbors, of which there are many yes. in rural places. And they probably have more money. And they often have more money, uh -huh. um, do not necessarily see this as you know, mm -hmm. as something that's in keeping with why they moved to the rural community. And now you can place yourself in the shoes of the planning commissioners in this type of setting as well. And understand, like, and this is one of the true things, right? Like you have to, if you're, if you are a planning commissioner in a rural place, you've got to think like, I'm not used to getting people, lots of people showing up to my planning commission meetings. And you're also thinking like, how prevalent how representative are the people that are showing up and yes. and telling me I don't want this thing in yes, my community? Yes, yes. How representative are they of the overall populace? Yes. And we know like from the planning side, I can yes. say from the city of Ann Arbor Planning Commission yes. that there's often a silent minority yeah. or I'm sorry, a, a vocal minority yes. who shows up <laughs> yes. when yes. they don't like a change in their backyard. Yes. Where there's the kind of silent majority who just doesn't show up at all. Like Yes. And so I am super empathetic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And especially for the uh, well planning commissioners, are they elected? Yeah. The, They're appointed. 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 They're appointed and then uh -huh. so it's a volunteer position. Oftentimes they don't get pay. Okay, and um, so then county commissioners appoint them usually. So county commission in places where the uh, and Michigan uh, yeah, is even weirder, bit, yeah. right? So Townships and, yeah, okay, so okay. but it's either the county commissioners where it's county level zoning, which is most uh, common in the U.S. in rural communities, or um, in the case of Michigan, we have hyper local zoning, which is kind of at the sub county level, okay. and so in that case, it's the township boards. Okay, that okay, would appoint them. Okay. And. Um, uh, Oh, I was I was gonna okay. So I wanted to maybe transition just a little bit, and and maybe look at the state of Michigan or why like what is prompting and this kind of goes maybe for like tax incentives as well. Like what policies incentivize say wind farm developers to come into these communities or why are they coming into these communities to yeah set up wind farms? Right. Well, um, historically. Right. I, and historically, I'm only going back like 15 years. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. 15. But the U.S. Yes. policy, like yes. there's two big U.S. policies, right? Pushing uh -huh. development. At the federal level, there's a production tax credit that okay. incentivized, that made it cheaper, like gave, gave wind and solar developers tax credits for building things. Um, but at the state level, the big policy was a renewable portfolio standard. So a state level mm -hmm. mandate requiring utilities. Um, to get a portion of their power from renewable sources. And so Michigan passed its first renewable portfolio standard in 2008, and that really created the market. We, okay. That policy was that they wanted to have 15 or 10% renewables by 2015. So seven okay. years to go from effectively like <laughs> zero to 10. Yes, yes. Um, and it worked. I mean, that's okay. the first wind farms in the state, including yes. the one that I – that inspired yes. my research, right? Yes. Um, that got me on this path. Like those were all built as a result of the renewable portfolio standard. Okay. In the state of Michigan in 26, maybe it was 2018, um, 
that was renewed um, okay. and increased slightly to uh, 15% renewables by 2021. Oh, okay. Um, we The utilities achieved that goal as well. Okay. Right now, the big policy the, or the big thing that's driving renewables development in Michigan is economics. The state requires that the utilities do integrated resource plans, which I don't know how common those are. No, I don't know. Um, so, yeah. so the okay, <laughs> explain. <laughs> I'll yes. explain. Yes. So effectively, the state requires the utilities to figure out to make plans for the next 15 years, where they're going to get, like how they're going to have both capacity and effectively generation in the next 15 years. And it requires them to look at a range of scenarios in terms of the cost of fuel inputs. You know, they're thinking about this is what they use to determine when they retire an old power plant or when they build new power plants, how much they get from within the state versus how much power they're importing. And they're running a range of scenarios. And in all of those scenarios, renewable energy sources I mean, there's a lot of gas that that is showing yeah, up yeah. too, but both utilities, both are Michigan has two big investor-owned utilities. Both of their integrated resource plans are finding renewables are the cheaper sources. Wow. So, so consumers' energy. I just looked at these numbers the other day. Is okay. looking to build eight gigawatts by 2040 of oh. just of solar. That's solar. Just alone. solar. Wow. The um, DTE Detroit Edison yes. is looking to do uh, 6.5 gigawatts of solar Ooh. by 2041, and I can't remember something like two gigawatts of of additional wind. Right now, oh. in the state of Michigan, um, we have about three gigawatts of wind and about half a gigawatt of solar. But okay. that's really switching as the cost of solars come down. So yes. we're seeing a whole lot more solar. Are there, do you think because Michigan, I mean, you know this more than me, but it has a lot of potential wind potential. Uh, is that just kind of where it maxes out at, at, at about this two? No. So <laughs> I think that there's a couple things going okay. on. The cost of solar has come down more. So that's why we're okay. seeing more solar. Also, there's obviously like the difference in the when the grid needs power, like the the produ- oh, like matching time of year and time yes. of day. Okay. Okay. In terms of when our wind resource is. Yes. Um, versus solar resource. Uh-huh. But the other thing that's really driving so much of this solar development is that there's community opposition to wind energy. Okay, yes. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I've had utility executives tell me, like, we wind pencils out to be cheaper. Yeah, totally. But you can't get a wind farm built right now. Oh, and so okay, okay. we're not putting our... So if... If there's a private developer that can get a wind farm built, they will totally buy those like yeah, the power yeah, coming yeah, from totally. that. <laughs> yeah, 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 because it is cheaper than solar. Because it's cheaper yeah. than solar, yeah. um, but not as much cheaper as it was before. Okay, okay, okay. And, um, and it's just really, really hard. Like, it's so hard to get. Yeah, the planning permission, as we just talked about basically yeah and uh offshore wind is that just a non-starter in michigan so the state holds the lake bed Mm -hmm. in trust and so the state would have to effectively auction off leases for that um so far throughout the great lakes states the only state that's done this is ohio Mm -hmm. and one of the challenges with offshore wind in the great lakes is that they freeze oh Okay. And so that's not common in European yeah, like offshore well, wind farms. Salt water, basically. <laughs> salt, yeah. Exactly. Freshwater versus yeah. saltwater. So actually the there is a project that's been under development, honestly, for over a decade. In Lake Erie, off of the coast of Cleveland, Ohio, mm-hmm. the name of the project is called Icebreaker because okay. it's to try to see like oh, that's yeah, one of the technical it, challenges oh. is is figuring out how to deal with ice heave and yeah. how that works. Oh, okay, so even on this technological area, there's still a lot of research and development that needs to occur, basically, in this to have right. it work. Yeah, and some That's of our sh- and and some places, particularly if you're getting offshore enough that you don't have f- concerns with social acceptance from the yes. nearshore neighbors, yes. the water gets pretty deep pretty quickly, and yes. so this is where the kind of offshore, like deep water offshore technologies are required. So oh. so the limitations of offshore wind in the Great Lakes has been both both the ice yes. and this. Wow, yeah. I would have thought, okay, yeah, okay, this is great. I mean, I think it's really interesting then that, that it's, because 
yeah, for those that don't know, when you go out to like Lake Michigan or like Huron, like you can't see the other side. It's like this giant sea or ocean right. that, that there's no end to it, basically. Right. So, yeah. And so you could put them, you could put offshore turbines 20 miles off the coast yes. and still not see them from either, yeah, either, either shore, side. either yeah, side. Yeah, I yeah. mean, except maybe you can see the red lights at night, which is oh, one of the things that, oh, yeah, they that people don't. have been talking oh, about. Oh, okay. Um, but, but then you have the, you know, it's deep. Okay, okay. So. We don't have a shallow... You know. Yeah, no, no. Okay, okay. And it, that's it, cool. And let's see, I don't want to keep you too long. Um, uh, and then some of the new new areas, though, we, we mentioned, you mentioned this uh, at the beginning, but um, I'm really interested in the community-centered solar development. Yeah. So you, you can correct me on this. But um, my, my, I, it's one of my questions I had before, though, is how does that tie into to energy communities? I'm I'm really interested in energy communities, and maybe you could talk about energy communities and if that ties into that or not. So when you talk about energy communities, this is referencing um, federal government's kind of definition of energy communities within kind of the Inflation Reduction Act, and that which is effectively, um, as the federal government is using the term, it's places that have historically been dependent on energy infrastructure and the revenues associated with that. Is that right? Um, no. Oh. I, well, well, let's just say I, I'm coming from a European perspective. Okay. What energy communities mean about like interconnecting the, the community uh, in a smart grid system or something like this. Oh. So, but I'm really interested. I, I hadn't even looked into the Inflation Reduction Act and what that means. So, so yeah, so please let, explain <laughs> from your perspective. Yeah. So within energy, so the reason that uh-huh. it's like a big thing is so the Inflation Reduction Act is one of the biden administration's like big climate wins um and there kind of been two different big climate bills one is the inflation reduction one is um what is actually called the bipartisan infrastructure law which is all kinds of infrastructure and and including energy infrastructure um but it's more or less about grants um kind of putting dollars to building stuff. The Inflation Reduction Act is really about expanding the tax credits that oh, uh-huh. energy developers can receive. Okay. Um, and again, those tax credits have been for wind and solar have been around for a while. And that act- that's a key driver nationwide of, okay. of our deployment today. Mm-hmm. The Inflation Reduction Act chain modifies them a little bit. Um, first of all, it adds on new technologies. So now you can get it, uh, it. One of the things is previously you couldn't get tax credits if you weren't a taxpayer, which was maybe this This is sort of linked to the European definition of energy communities. Um, our, our local governments don't pay taxes. Uh-huh. So if you wanted to put solar panels on City Hall, the roof of City Hall, you couldn't get the 30% tax deduction on that. So you had to have these like crazy arrangements with a private equity firm, which I totally, I don't totally understand. But the idea that you can be direct paid now is really important. Oh, okay. The other change that happened to a lot of those tax credits in the, in IRA as the Uh kind of shorthand that people went for is that there's additional bonuses for a, um, a range of different um, deployment scenarios for renewables. So, for example, if you are, and one of the, I'll start with the energy communities one. Yeah. So, energy communities is defined as communities that have that have a particular amount of their employment or of their um, their public revenues coming from fossil energy oh, infrastructure. I get it. And so, the sense is. For this new clean energy infrastructure, like we know that those fossil communities could be losers, yes, <laughs> and so yes. let's try to direct some of it there. So this, so that's one of the tools that the federal government's used to try to direct additional energy, clean energy infrastructure in those historic. I understand energy transition. Communities. Yes, kind of like a just transition. Total just framing. transition. That's yes, okay. that's the terminology that we've okay. got going on here. There's also you can get tax credits by um, having by using prevailing wages, um, so kind of paying workers more fairly, or by having apprenticeships, which is really tied to union labor, unionized oh, labor. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So 
Um, you can also get additional tax credits, tax credit benefits by developing on um, brownfields or like previously disturbed lands. Okay. So all of these things are helping, well, are trying to induce developers, wind and solar developers, to do things that may be seen as more preferable. I mean, one of the critiques of this is, what if there's an energy community that has historically, you know, had coal or oil and gas? Who's done being an energy community? Like, yes. they want to move yeah, on. Yeah, they're exhausted. <laughs> yeah, the resources and everything, and they want to move on. They want to move on mm -hmm. to something else. Mm -hmm. And so there's some question about whether it makes a lot of assumptions about what... It makes mm -hmm. the assumption, effectively, that energy infrastructure is a good, which... Given that there's a whole bunch of opposition. Oh, yeah, because maybe, I don't know, they want to go to tourism or something, something much more sustainable and green. Uh, well, from their perspective, or, you know. Or from, from, sorry, I, I, I'm not putting some judgment in there. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. They, uh -huh. they have a different version of yes. how they want to transition their economy. Yes. And yes. so, I mean, I think that that's a little bit tied up in this as well. Okay. But that, so okay. that's what we mean by energy community. But based on what you were saying, yes. I think the kind of, maybe the term that we would use more is, um, we often talk about like community solar projects. Yeah, yeah exactly. Where uh -huh. it's effectively owned, like the community is the investor. Yes. Um, and the viability of that varies from state to state because okay. the state effectively determines whether or not they force the utilities to. Oh, I see. To, yes. Um, to allow for comp competitors in this way. Yes. Right. Um, where. In most of the U.S., the utilities kind of have a lock on the market, okay. and it's, it's not necessarily kind of um, fully kind of competitive. And community ownership of renewable project is seen as kind of a competition. So in the state of Michigan, the utilities are not forced to allow for community solar. Yeah. Well, we could have a big discussion about what the two big utilities do in Michigan, oh, I guess. Oh, goodness. But, yeah. Okay, okay. So in, so in Michigan, they're not so into competition from the community level. Right. They, they so the project know. that we were talking yeah. about, this one so, that's, uh -huh. that um, is funded by the Department of Energy, Solar Energy Technologies Office, mm -hmm. the kind of primary or the, the lead on this is Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. But the, the grant is called Community-Centered Solar Development. And so what we're trying to understand is there's a couple parts of it. The w parts that I'm most involved in are first kind of looking, doing some case study research uh -huh. across seven different solar farms um, to understand like what happened. <laughs> like yes. really in-depth understandings of kind of um, – how those projects came to be, like what worked well and what didn't work well in the planning process, what people feel, how neighbors feel about the project now that it's built. Okay. The part that University of Michigan is leading in this is a nationwide survey of solar farm neighbors. Um, and again, like we're, this is large scale solar. So the smallest projects that we're looking at are one megawatt. Um, everything else is, is bigger than that. We're looking to some extent, we want to, we believe a lot of the literature finds that there's different perceptions based on community ownership, mm -hmm. but community-owned projects tend to also be small. Oh, and I so we're that. trying to tease apart yes. ownership from so like scale of project, oh. from whether it's developed on a brownfield site versus a greenfield site versus whether they have – is agrivoltaics a term yes, that you I use understand. a lot? Okay. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, so it's trying to understand kind of neighbor perceptions – of those yes. a, from a, a bunch of different kind of um, design features, design not just being physical, but also kind of policy. Um, and really to try to figure out how would people living with and near wind, solar farms, sorry, yes. solar farms, um, what, what would they suggest for future development? Okay. And then our final part of this project is to have community-led discussions, like mm -hmm. develop a toolkit for okay. communities to have a proactive conversation. Yes, yes. <laughs> about yes. what's what what they would want to see in terms of solar in their communities. Uh -huh. I love this. This is so interesting because um, 
Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of one. I'm kind of surprised it's taken so long to do a project like this. So, so I mean, no, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's insulting or not, but but that's great. You know that that finally they're they're looking at this or you're looking at this is it's wonderful. But I was just wondering, maybe is this a, a, also a project then that can begin this discussion more in these. I don't know, I'll just say communities, and you can define it however, mm-hmm. where these projects may be to start talking about how energy is produced or electricity pr- produced. Like, what what is the role of renewable energy in these communities? Is this a, a means to, to, I don't know, provoke dialogue? That's my hope. And I mean, this the part that we're funded to do is really about solar. But I, I mean, I'm a planner, right? Yeah, like, yes. I'm not an I mean, I am an energy person, but I'm <laughs> yes. really... Yeah, and I think what's really hard is that in most of this, in most of the U.S., communities are reacting to proposals by private developers for energy, yeah. rather than thinking about the role that renewable energy can play in their community. In part, there's some element of I mean, this may be different than than Europe. In a lot of rural America, there's not a huge. Um, uh, concern over climate change. Okay. And so mm-hmm. so very few rural communities are saying, like, what we really need is renewable energy. There's lots of things that, that you know, there's disinvestment in yes. rural communities. And so there's lots of things that they, that where energy infrastructure can be a tool to get them the things that they need. Yes. <laughs> but they usually, like, aren't thinking about that from the get-go. Like, they're not okay. approaching the conversation that way. So, but that's increasingly, because I'm a planner, I yes. want them, and I think the convers- their conversations will end up better yes. if they are if they're coming to it themselves yes. and saying like this is something that we want in our community that it's going to get us the things that we've energy infrastructure is going to bring with it that economic development or the jobs or the yes whatever yes yes that is what our community really needs and so I see this kind of community centered solar development as one piece of that puzzle. Like, uh-huh. I've been working on other things to try to have that conversation about wind, about we've, we're seeing a lot of battery storage starting. Yes. And really, I go back to that kind of the place I have at this at the University of Michigan. We have people on our north campus, our engine where our engineering school is yes. designing the next technology, the kind of advanced nuclear and, and the uh-huh. hydrogen and all of yes. those kind of things. And I really love for them to understand early on what it is that communities want yeah. so that they can design that into their new technologies rather than coming up with the technology and saying, hey, communities. Yeah, this is what we have. This is what we we're, have. We're coming with it. That's so interesting. How, because I know, yeah, I definitely know, I would say the conversation level, even in rural areas in, in Europe, would be, um, and this would include like Poland and Hungary even, and certainly France and Germany and other countries would be, yeah, these renewable uh, technologies like solar or wind are, are really exciting and, and we want to use them, but uh, they're really expensive so we can't use them. So, so something like that. So people are aware of it and they want to do it and they want to transition uh, away from, they know they need to get away from coal or something dirty, but they're just they don't know kind of what to do. But in in America, more rural communities, what would people say? Well, I would say rural communities want their power to be more reliable. Okay, <laughs> like, yes, which is problematic because it's the distribution <laughs> yeah. grid rather than the transmission grid yeah, that yeah, these yeah. big power like yes. these big sources are feeding into that yes. so so that is their relationship with power there is uh-huh. a bunch of energy poverty in rural communities mm. throughout the US yeah. so they're paying a disproportionate share of their income towards energy yeah but they are part of utilities they're served by a utility that has a bigger territory that also includes urban areas and so um, and because we because we have these monopolistic utilities, yes, <laughs> they yes. don't really have an opportunity to kind of pull out of that. And so okay. as the cost of renewables has been coming down, yes. and I think that this is one of the things that's really hard too. I'm not an energy economist, but I believe the economists when they tell me that like actually building new renewables is cost effective, yes. right? Like, yes, yes. 
but the cost of electricity keeps going up and the cost of electricity keeps going up for the maintenance of the dirty system that yes. we have. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so for the average person, like they're being told we need your community to host this power to keep our power prices low, but then their electricity bill keeps going up. And so there's a lot of distrust and like, mm. it's hard to know what would happen if those new renewables weren't built. Like what would happen yes. if it instead it was coal? Like yes. their bills would go up even higher. Yeah, because it's even more expensive. But but that counterfactual doesn't exist. And the, the, so they don't feel the benefit. So they, they don't, don't see it and feel it. They don't yeah. see it or feel it. Yeah. And so there's some, the state of New York, for example, has a program where the people that are within the vicinity of a wind or solar farm, they have a small rebate on their utility bill so that their oh. electricity bill goes down. Yeah, right. It's honestly not big enough to make much of a difference. It's a couple okay. dollars. Yeah. Like, and so it's a really a, a kind of a drop in the bucket. But it's getting at the right idea. And some of my work, um, and, there's, and there's maybe not tons of work in this space, but is also looking at the different development models and community compensation models mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that developer that wind and solar developers use um because it matters it matters for the neighbors of these projects it matters yes. for the communities that they're cited in so again because of kind of the utility system it's not super common to have a community ownership in a project but if there's a way to have community-wide benefits yes and or direct economic benefits to neighbors and there are that's that's a common thing in the wind space now increasing a little bit in the solar space um but that's that's really important for how you know whether a community thinks yes. that they this is good for them or not but it's almost like a, a social it is a social justice issue then where where maybe it is particularly when you're speaking of energy poverty so people living in energy poverty but in some place with lots of wind and then but their bills don't go down in fact they increase and at the same time they live in this wind farm and it's all the electricity is sent i don't know to the city but okay maybe they get some of it back but but this this is the issue is a justice issue. I I think so, but I think one of the mm. things that's really tricky that some folks would say is that a lot of these rural communities that are experiencing energy poverty have been importers of power forever. So they haven't had to see the uh -huh. the the energy infrastructure, right? Yes. They don't live with the coal or natural gas power plants in their backyard. Those are those tend to be urban communities. They tend to be lower income. They tend to have more people of color in those communities. And those power plants that bring with them, like, not just a visual disamenity, but yes. also pollution, yes. right? That, are, yes. that are yes. really, yes. really felt in those communities. Like, um, there's, like, there's also an argument that rural communities that say no to wind and solar are perpetuating the environmental justice injustice felt oh, in those fossil fuel, fossil fuel. communities. And, it gets really, and, and you can't just close that coal-fired power plant and replace it with wind and solar because yeah. it's not the same land area. There's not enough land area there. Yeah. And sometimes the places that host those fossil fuel plants, they're so economically reliant on that infrastructure that they're reluctant to close. Anyway, it's a, it's a really... Yeah. When we talk about the justice, it's yes. like it gets, it's really sticky. But I... And I regularly feel like the weird person saying, like, don't think about the justice in these rural communities. And usually I get shouted down. So I'm so happy to find a kindred spirit. No, <laughs> no, no. This is what I like writing about, in fact. Yes. It's this gray area of, of, of you know, there's, there's uh, yeah, there, there, I like this idea of energy justice. But getting into this gray area of justice for who? So this is always the big question, justice well, for who? Is the injustice of a visual disamenity the same as one associated with, like, one that has health impacts that's really going to harm you, right? Yes. And um, climate. And climate cli change, right? Well, About future generations. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's... it's 
I love this area. So yeah, yeah, exactly. But but um, maybe maybe uh, to move on. <laughs> so we'll have a discussion later. More more <laughs> of it later. Later is another project that you have. This zoning database uh, in six states. Or oh, th- this this was about it. No, well, the database. Yeah. So I mean, one of sorry. I mean I can uh, sorry if people I'm, are I'm really I mean between. there's not. There are not too many planners in the country. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know how, how this translates in Europe. Zoning is the local land use authorities. Uh, it's usually a function of local governments in yes. the U.S. Um, to regulate land use. And uh, like I said before, it's really diffuse in Michigan. Even in other places, though, it's at kind of even in other states, it tends to be at the county level. Um, and... There are very few planners in the country, in the entire U.S., that have given much thought to energy infrastructure. Because historically, we haven't had to because we have these all yes. of these centralized power plants. Yes. And that is not a, necessarily a land use planner's function. Like, it's yes. an energy planner's function, yes. right? And so now we have all of these power plants, these renewable energy power plants that have land use implications in lots more places because they stretch over larger territories. Yeah. And so um, one of the things that I've got a lot of active work on trying to figure out how rural communities are thinking about energy infrastructure, how they are regulating it through their zoning. Um, and it's a it's a thankless job. <laughs> but also I'm trying to build a database for other researchers. We are pulling together a database of all of the zoning ordinances in the in rural communities. I haven't gotten all of the cities. In the state of Michigan, I have all the cities and villages too. But in in um, the, the six states kind of in the Great Lakes region, all of the rural places. And right now I think I have over 1,900 PDFs. I mean, wow. and we're only halfway through. But it's so important and it should be, well, I, I, I don't want how, to, how well would a more standardized approach be useful in this context about renewable energy and zoning? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and there's lots of calls for that because when yeah. the rules are changing every six miles, which yes. is common in the state of Michigan, it can be really tricky. Um, most wind farms in the state of Michigan are in multiple local governments. Yeah. And so they've got to comply with, you know, with those different zoning rules. So, on the one hand, I'm going to do the total normal academic thing. Right? Okay. Like, on the one hand, yes. um, it would be easier. Like, and there's a lots, there's many, many calls for a more standardized approach, especially in light of communities who want to block projects. Mm-hmm. And in light of local governments who operate with a whole bunch of volunteers. Yes. <laughs> who are not necessarily trained in yeah. In energy, right? Yes, yes. Um, so, so that's the argument for kind of more standardization. The argument for not having, for allowing this is that, first of all, in the U.S., we have a strong tradition of yes. these, all of these governments determining the use of their land. Yes. Financially, most of, most governments in the U.S. are, um, are, their budget is based on their property taxes. And so mm-hmm. what happens on in terms of land development is really important to them. And so yes. so if you think that like having 2,000 acres occupied by a solar farm, like you're precluding some other kind of development. Yes, and yes, if that local yes, government yes. is financially re- like reliant on their f- on their property taxes, like that might be a reason yes. to, to kind of give some local discretion. But also, this is the idea that I think that there's a lot of concern that if there was more standardization, that there would be less of an opportunity for communities to decide for themselves what fits. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we have a huge diversity in yes. terms of kind of land use functions and the senses. Like, I don't, if a standardized approach includes a single set of rules for the entire state. I couldn't come up with that with the state of Michigan. And like, this is what I yes. have spent 10 years like trying yes. to study Yes, um, something that works like all across the state. And I don't know. I think that that's, I think that that's really tricky to figure out. So. Um, I'm glad I asked you that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, think of it if you're, but you know this, if you're a wind farm developer, you're like, 
And and this is part of the national debate about how long the the permitting process takes and everything. Yes. Right. So if we need to meet these goals, do all these things, we have to massively roll out wind farms, solar farms, and if each municipality or jurisdiction has different rules, it just takes forever then to do that. Yes, there are calls again, and again, and even so. You talked about going back to like what's driving Michigan policy. Like yeah. our governor has a had a council come up with a climate a carbon neutrality plan. In that there's an interim target to try to get to 60 right now we're at about 20% like just over 15% <laughs> renewables. The plan calls for 60% renewables by 2030. Wow. And citing these local land use rules yes. and ability to deploy this infrastructure is cited as the number one barrier yes. to getting to that. There's been calls here and in other states to just take over, take away local control, like make yes. it more centralized, like a more standardized approach. And actually a couple months, it's not months, it's a couple weeks ago in the state of Illinois, which is not far. Yes. Um, that's exactly what they did. Like the, oh, okay. they took, they took over, um, local control. Well, actually, they didn't totally take it away. They said, here's the standards that we're going to have statewide. And honestly, in many ways, it's a giveaway to industry. They, oh. Local governments can still be less restrictive, but okay. it, it effectively says every land that is industrial or agricultural, like yes. the local government has to allow wind and solar. Wow. That's really something. That's something. So, yeah. the, I, so I should say, I think, like, will that policy lead to more renewables being deployed in the short term? Yes. Will it lead? Would, is that a durable policy? Yes. <laughs> that is going to withhold changes in political administrations that is, I mean, already today in, um, I read Midwest Energy News like that. Okay. Is my, it's a fantastic yeah, news source. Okay. The headline was about county pushback. Like in yes. in Illinois to this bill yeah, because yeah, yeah. the sense is from these rural communities like the state government has taken away all of our power yes. even in communities that were that had policies that were favoring wind and solar development that aren't really affected at all by this change like yes. they already were allowing it yeah. the sense is that like. If this is such a good, I mean, and this is my own yes. thing. If we believe that these technologies are such a good thing, then why is it so hard to get a community to say yes? And my sense is maybe the design of the technology right now or the um, benefits that communities are given yes. isn't in keeping with the things that they need. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. anyway. That's so interesting. No, yeah, it is the technology. How, how does the technology need to change to get social acceptability? Both in terms of like the technology itself, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, this is America, right? The yes. bigger is better. Yes. And so like oh, we are, yes. our soul, yeah. I mean, the size of our solar farms is just, I don't, I don't know if you have seen that there's a, a project in Indiana that's called the Mammoth Solar Farm. That's 1.2 gigawatts. Oh, wow. It is 13,000 acres. <laughs> How many miles is that? That's like 16 square miles. Oh. Holy cow. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's a lot. Wow. There are wow. economies of scale, but honestly, okay. at some point. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. It's changing entire landscapes. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like there's not tons of safeguards, honestly, in the mm -hmm. in the approach that, that some in industry would push in these states, including the bill in Illinois, yeah. that says, like, mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're going to keep things within Maybe. reason. Yeah, because I would say maybe a European approach would be mixed, mixed use, I would say, just because the landscape and houses and everyone's much closer together, uh, less vast open areas and everything. So there has to be cohabitation, we'll call it, yeah. between the technology. And so like there, yeah, like you'll see a small solar farm on the side of the road, but, you know, maybe two or three hectares max, something like that. Not not too big but just kind of there, but quite a few of them around the landscape. Right. And yeah, and then it maybe the farmer owns it and then they feed in or, I mean, depends on, in Austria, there's there's big wind farms as well. That, that's more general where they cluster them together, but also like biogas is something that's being developed more and more. So bringing the, the farmers in into this area of renewable energy and making, making sure that they make money yeah. off of these technologies. And 
even I would say maybe for the urban city people, kind of this awareness that, yeah, we need to have these renewables and people generally support it. But also I would say maybe in these former coal mining regions, getting the transition going as well. Similar, I guess, when these energy communities, as it's defined in the U.S., Mm -hmm. is, yeah, replacing, putting solar uh, panels, solar farms on the old coal mining hills type of thing where the lignite was extracted as part of the redevelopment process or some uh, wind farms there as well. But wind farms are quite loud, too. So there has to be this kind of, I mean, I've, been in Scotland where it was really windy and I was like what is that noise and then after riding down the road a little bit then I saw this giant windmill but so there's the noise factor all this type of stuff has to be accounted for and not kind of just thrown away because yeah you, you mentioned Illinois but by the state legislator pushing this through then that gives a I would say a bad name or right it, it, there's a counter political pushback to that. I think that's what we're going to see. Leah Stokes um, from UC uh, Santa Barbara has some research that finds this political blowback in Ontario, Canada, when effectively the same thing happened where it shifted from kind of local control to provincial level control. I We have elements of this in the state of Ohio. It was state level control. Lots of communities saying like, we don't want this. So so they've kind of reversed and given local governments veto power over these projects. Now you can't, it's really hard to get anything cited in Ohio. And Uh so, uh I mean, time will tell. Right now, folks believe that there's a political window, that it makes sense. I, I think in all of this space, and I think this is where I'll go back to like, really, I came back because I grew up in a rural, to get my PhD, because I grew up in a rural community. And I care about like giving rural communities tools to be able to prepare for the future in the way that is compatible with where they want to be. Yes. Um, I think that I worry that there's a, a lot of policies being pushed for from urbanites yes and there's a there's a perception that yeah our our rural areas in the united states are vast but that there's nothing going on there or that there's not a lot of people that live there and that's not true yes Yes. (laughs) like those rural spaces have some function and in sometimes it is an agricultural function Mm -hmm. sometimes like there's usually somebody there sometimes it's an ecological function like there yes I know that the, I mean, I know that in Europe there's much more discussion about kind of multifunctional kind of rural landscapes and the kind of rural takes a different flavor mm-hmm. there than yeah. it does here. But I, I think this is, this is forcing a conversation about rural land use that I think that we're just at the cusp of in in yes. American rural land use. Yes. That I think we're just at the cusp of, and um, yeah. And I maybe I'm just a worry wart, but I do worry. <laughs> like I think that this is the place that uh-huh. we can either build build bridges because yes. this is we need rural communities in order to achieve decarbonization. Yes, yes. Or this is a place where we can really have an even bigger kind of political and social divide. Um, if if rural mm. communities are feeling like they are bearing the brunt, yeah, the burden of yeah. that of that. No, transition. I like that. I like that bridge building. So I, I think it's a great opportunity. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. So Sarah, uh, we'll we'll conclude, but I just have one one final question then, because this is the My Energy 2050 podcast. Is so Michigan has these goals you mentioned, and. What do you think Michigan will look like in 2050? Mm, that is a really great question. Um, there's a lot of talk about Michigan being a climate refuge. We have great mm-hmm. access to water. Yes. Um, I, I think that our conversation about renewables is going to start to prompt conversations about how we fit it all in. Yeah. I think that there's there's a lot of folks who care about our water quality and yeah. and know that kind of the fossil fuel infra- industry is not great. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, for our water. No, no, no. Um, and yeah. so I think that it will prompt, I think it will prompt a conversation. I think that we will decarbonize. 
I, my sense is that it may not be entirely through renewables. I okay. I think that there will be a lot of room for gas. Maybe or? I will. I mean. Maybe that we already have a lot of nuclear, and maybe it's just okay, that I grew nuclear. up in the okay. shadow of a nuclear power plant that I feel <laughs> okay. like, eh. Yeah, whatever. I'm alive. <laughs> I'm yeah. alive. I don't know. Yeah. we got to figure out waste. Yes. Um, but I, I think that we'll get there. Um, but I think I think Michigan 2050 is going to have a lot more people. Okay, okay. Um, and I think that, I, I think that we're going to, our energy landscape – we will have a lot more renewables than what we have now, but okay. maybe it's, I don't, I can't imagine us being a hundred percent renewable. <laughs> okay. That's great. All right, Sarah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produced the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. And remember, each episode is equivalent to consuming 10 journal articles, one book, and 500 charts on how to implement the energy transition. And you get it all in less, usually, than 60 minutes for each podcast. Guaranteed. I can actually say no other podcast makes this guarantee. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make the transition. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are most active, on the My Energy 2050 page or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.